Amen. This morning we're going to talk about church leadership. Um, and First Peter is going to give us a hand on that. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, um, but churches are not always healthy. Um, sometimes churches are unhealthy. Sometimes churches split. Did you know that? Sometimes, don't worry, we're not splitting. Um, if you're like, huh, I sent out this really nebulous text yesterday to everybody, like, you got to come, it's going to be really important. And everyone's like, what's happening? What's going on? Are we dying? Are we dead? Are we good? Everything's great, actually. This is great. This is exciting. I've been, exci- I've been looking forward to preaching this sermon for two and a half years, just so you know. Um, so good, good things, good tidings. Can I say that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so churches are not always healthy. Sometimes churches are unhealthy, um, and sometimes churches split. And typically, if you look upstream from what creates an unhealthy church, it's an unhealthy leadership structure. If you look upstream from an unhealthy leadership structure, there's often unhealthy leadership, which creates ultimately downstream, creates unhealthy unhealthy church culture. So if you are in healthy, if you are a healthy organism, a healthy church, a healthy organization, then you want to uh, create healthy structure that's going to support more health. And what's so exciting about that is that this morning we get to ask the question, Philippi has begun to grow, it's begun to bloom, we've seen fruit, it's growing. What does it look like to support that growth as it moves forward? Uh, there's this uh, cool kind of analogy in The Lord of the Rings. If you guys have read the books or seen the movies, um, and, and there's this kind of meta-narrative that runs throughout the story, and, and the idea is this, this struggle that humans have with power. And, and the interesting thing about this is that there's the, there's the battlefield um, that's visible, and then there's the battlefield that's invisible within the hearts of the, the, the key characters. Because you see, evil is not just outside of the walls, evil is also on the inside of the walls. And in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it's characterized in this small, seemingly insignificant, seemingly unimportant gold ring. And the interesting thing about this is that the the power that the ring has over men, the power that the ring has, because what it promises is it promises authority and it promises power. And so what Tolkien kind of, um, he kind of gathers or grabs in his illustration is that man is susceptible to power. So what is the answer? Fellowship. There's a group of people that hoist the weight and carry the weight together. And men like Aragorn is sort of the star of the movie. He knows his own propensity to fall. So he surrounds himself with other people. He barricades his weakness and they carry the burden together. And then at the very end of the movie, spoiler alert, Frodo can't make it up the the volcano so Samwise has to carry him. It's a community thing. The weight is a community burden. The evil that the church faces, and there is an evil that the church faces, you know, Jesus said the gates of hell uh, will not prevail. There is an active force, an active enemy that comes against the church. It lives, listen to me, it lives not only outside the church, it lives within the church. And it seeks to destroy it from the inside out. Where is Satan roaming? He's certainly roaming out there. He's also roaming in here. Okay, uh, and so what that means is that we need to be aware of our own propensity for man to screw it all up. I've been listening to this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. There was a church in Seattle uh, that grew from a handful of people in a house to about 15,000 people in the course of about 10 to 15 years. It became this mega church. The whole thing dissolved in a week because an unhealthy leader created an unhealthy structure that was all about him. And when he fell, the whole thing collapsed. 
It's a story that we're seeing over and over and over again. Why does all this matter? Why am I bringing all this up? I'm bringing this up because God is building something here at Philippi. And it's important that as God is building that we stop and we say, God, are we building an appropriate, um, are we building an appropriate planter box for the organic life that you're growing? Are we building an appropriate trellis, a biblical trellis for that life to grow up and to grow on that we'll be able to support that growth and that life? What is the biblical way of doing that? How should a church be led? Have you ever heard a sermon about how a church should be led? Well, you're going to hear one. What does the Bible say about church leadership, about who's supposed to run a church, how they're supposed to run a church, what a church is supposed to be run um, by or how? That's basically what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. I would love, my goals, my, my desired outcome is that we would all be literate about what the Bible says about um, biblical leadership, and then that we as a church would surrender and submit ourselves under that model, because I think there is a biblical model. And I think a lot of the carnage that we're seeing out in the evangelical world right now is because unbiblical models continue to be produced, and unbiblical models ultimately end in ruin. So how does Philippi Church, how do we create a biblical model that supports the life. I think Peter is going to be our guide this morning. God's word is our guide. This isn't Sam's approach to church leadership. This is what does God's word say about biblical leadership. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So that's basically where we, we interact with 1 Peter. Now, let me give you a little bit of background to 1 Peter. 1 Peter uh, is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of churches, a circuit of churches in Asia Minor. Uh, this is what we would now see as modern-day Turkey. Uh, Peter had particular influence in the Asia Minor region, and he wrote a pastoral epistle. Uh, he wrote an epistle, uh, probably would be called more a general epistle, to all of those churches. And they would read it out loud, then they would pass it on to the next uh, church. There's a circuit, seven churches in primary uh, that, that you would see, and you would recognize them all because they're the same churches that you read about in Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus is writing his epistle to the churches in Asia Minor. So this is a, this is a letter to the church, to the local church, and it's a letter to not only the church members, but the church leaders, this is a letter to a persecuted church, a suffering church, a struggling church, a church that was dealing with, with tension and, and, and friction. And Peter is um, trying to encourage these guys with this letter. It's an incredible letter. I encourage you to read it. We're going to pop in at the very end of the letter in chapter 5, and we're going to hear Peter's concluding thoughts to these churches, to these local churches. Now, Peter's going to say two basic things, okay? We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. He's going to say two basic things. If you're an outliner, uh, write this down. First, he's going to say how the church is to be led, and then he's going to say how the church is to follow. How the church is to be led, verse 1 through 4, how the church is to follow, verse 5 through 11. So we're going to start with how the church is to be led. And there's four sections here that we're going to talk about. Peter's going to answer four questions for us about church leadership, okay? He's going to answer four questions about church leadership. Number one, who leads the church? Number two, what is a church leader? Number three, how are church leaders to lead? And why are church leaders to lead? So the who, the what, the how, and the why. Now let's just work our way through this. This is going to help us unpack this passage and ask the question, what is biblical leadership? So first question, who leads the church? Who leads the church? Before you can ask the question, who leads the church, you have to ask the more superior question, who owns the church? Who owns the church? This is like Sunday school. Sunday school. 
Jesus owns the church. I know that that's kind of funny, but he really does. This is his. Look at verse four really quick in our text. I know we're not there yet, but I'm gonna skip ahead. What does Peter say? This is the most important thing you'll hear all morning. And when the chief shepherd appears, who's the chief shepherd? Jesus is the chief shepherd. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, there's something that humans have argued about for thousands of years, and it's this question. Who runs the church? People have split over it. Massive splits have come over. In fact, there was a massive split that you might be familiar with called the Protestant Reformation. This was a split uh, at its core in many ways about who actually has authority over the church. Is it the Pope or is it God's word? Who really has authority? Who really owns the church? Peter uses this term, arch uh, archipoemen. It's chief shepherd. It's where the, the Catholics get their term archbishop. Okay, so you would think it's a fairly common term throughout the Bible, right? Uh, so you could say lead pastor, archbishop, chief shepherd. This term is only used one time in the New Testament to refer to one person, and it's not Peter. It's not Peter. Who is it? It's Jesus. There is one archbishop. The Catholics got this kind of funny idea um, that, that there was supposed to be a chief leader for all of the universal, you know, Catholic really just means universal, uh, the, the universal church. And they get that idea from different texts. One of the texts that they misinterpret is that the moment where Jesus is interacting with um, Peter and they're at Caesarea Philippi and uh, Jesus asks Peter a question. He says, who do people say that I am? In fact, he asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people say you're this, some people say you're that. And then he looks at Peter and singles him out and he says, who do you say that I am? And it's a very important moment, right? Everyone has to make that statement. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, and uh, Jesus says, uh, nice job, Nimrod. You didn't, think that on, you didn't think of that on your own. That was the Holy Spirit, actually. Um, but good job. You're right. Yes, you don't know that. You don't even know what you're talking about, but you're right. You are right, I am. He says, I am Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Now that doesn't mean that the gates of hell are attacking. It means that death will, the church will never die. It's eternal. It's an eternal organism. Now the Catholics and others would say, well, that means that the, the, the church was built upon the, the rock, the Petros of Peter and the, and, and the, uh, the apostolic lineage and the papacy. Wrong. It's not what Jesus is saying. Look at the text. What Jesus is saying is, he's saying, I will build my church upon what? The declaration of Jesus' messiahship. What is that? It's the gospel. The church is built on the bedrock of the gospel. There is only one pope, and his name is Jesus. There is only one chief shepherd, and his name is Jesus. He is running, and he is the owner, and he is the chief operator of 
his church. That's why in Revelation chapter 1, we see Jesus in the midst of the lampstands, which signifies the churches. We see him holding the stars in his hand, which signifies the leadership of the churches. He's in charge. It's his church. He bought it with his blood for his purpose, for his glory. It's his bride. It's his body. It's his building. He's the chief cornerstone and the capstone. It's Jesus's church. It's Jesus's church. It's Jesus's church. Can I say it one more time? It's Jesus' church. Thank you, Bob. That was good. Gosh, if there's one thing you get today, it's Jesus' church. He owns it. Who leads the church? Jesus leads the church because it's his. There is no archbishop. There is no pope. Okay? There is no pope. I don't know what he is, but he's not our pope. If Peter wanted to be the pope, he would have been. He had no interest in that. It's very clear. It's very clear from this passage that Peter had no interest in being some kind of a chief overlord of all of Christianity. Neither did Paul, by the way. None of the apostles had an interest in being some kind of a supreme leader to the empire of Christianity. None of them did. None of them did it. So who leads the church? Now let's look at verse one because we still need to ask the question, well, okay, so Jesus is the chief shepherd. I get that, Sam. Um, And he leads through the Holy Spirit. I get that. But then what about the local assembly? Who is organizing? Who is in leadership over the local assembly? Okay, well, here's what Peter says in verse one. He says, so I exhort the, note the word, elders among you as a fellow elder. Notice he doesn't say as your chief shepherd. Notice he doesn't say as the apostle, although he could have claimed apostolic authority here. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm one of you guys. I'm an elder. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So here Peter presupposes this group of of men called the elders. Okay, And it's a plurality And it's a plurality of men. He presupposes that there's this group in the church. And now Peter turns his attention to them and speaks to them. And he says, now I want to talk to the elders. He's just spent four chapters talking to the church. Now he wants to talk to the elders. Well, who are these elders? What does elder mean? Where did this come from? Uh, Some of you guys have been in church for some time. Maybe some of you guys went to churches that had elders. So maybe you have some baggage. Maybe you have some ideas about what this means. Some of you guys really didn't grow up in church. An elder just sounds like a freaky thing. Or maybe it sounds like you had some Mormon come to your door and say, I'm elder so-and-so. And you're like, oh, no. Was that the announcement, Sam? We're becoming a Mormon church. No, we're not. Okay, we're good. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> you know, um, no, we're not. Although I do have my holy underwear on right now, so we're good. Um, anyways, totally lost my train of thought. Where was I? Who are the elders? Who are these guys? The word elder is actually the Greek word presbyteros. Can you say presbyteros? Presbyteros, now you know Greek. Um, presbyteros was a word that was actually pretty common in the Greek uh, world. And it was really a, a term that was baptized into Christianity from Judaism. Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, we hear about the elders. There's always elders. Elders just really means a conglomeration or a board or a community or a committee of oversight for a particular group, similar to a city council or something like that. So uh, all through the Old Testament, there's always um, a council of elders in different villages and different tribes and different cities and different areas. Uh, the idea of community, everybody gets that, by the way. 
Everybody gets that there's a community oversight to things. That's just healthy. Any organization should have that, right? So what happened when the church came along, though, Acts chapter 1 through 11, elders almost always and exclusively refers to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the 70 chief elders of Israel. They were a conglomeration of the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the people that killed Jesus. You could say the elders killed Jesus, okay? These, these were these guys. But then about Acts chapter 11 and 12, the church starts to get organized. And as the church starts to get organized, uh, they realize that we need to appoint elders to oversee local assemblies, that we need to appoint presbyteros, uh, we need to make our own version, basically, of elders, and they start to do that, they begin to do that. And so when Peter writes to these churches, he's assuming that they've already assembled, or that they've already appointed elders in these local assemblies. He just assumes that that's already there. Now, there's three different words in the New Testament that we use for elder. One is what I just said, presbyteros. The other is episkopos. Can you say episkopos? Um, episkopos is often translated overseer. Uh, we'll talk more about that word later. The third word is poemen, and it's shepherd. Okay, so you have uh, elder, overseer, and shepherd. These three words are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. It doesn't seem that there seems to be much distinction between them. There was a group, they were called elders, they were called pastors, they were called bishop, if you read King James, they were called overseers. They're all the same thing. They're all the same thing, and, and, and I just want to make that, that sort of clear right there. Now, what are the different types of leadership? I know this seems like a Sunday school class, but this is actually really important, okay? This, se this seems like a, like a lecture, but this is important. There's different types of church governances that we see in the West. Okay, what are the different types of church governance? There are first, you'll notice these words, the first type of church governance is the Episcopalian model from the word episkopos. Episcopalian model is a church that has a hierarchy. Catholics would be considered an Episcopalian model. The idea is that there is sort of a hierarchical, um, top-down, kind of authoritative structure. So certain churches in our community, some of these are great churches, they have an Episcopalian model, and that means that they belong to a denomination. And that denomination oftentimes oversees uh, what they can and can't do. Oftentimes, they'll have a district manager or an archbishop or whatever. Um, oftentimes, the property belongs to the denomination, and it's very similar to like a corporate entity. Okay, that is an Episcopalian model. Then there's a Presbyterian model, which is similar to that, except you get to elect officials up into like a board. Okay, so if we were that model, then you guys would get to vote on who gets to go have a say in our district and things like that. Uh, now, that whole world is very unfamiliar to me. I didn't grow up in any of those kinds of churches. The third model is probably what I'm most familiar with, probably what many of you are most familiar with, and that's called congregationalism or the Baptist model, okay? Congregationalism, and that basically means that churches are autonomous and self-governed. So it's up to the church itself to appoint and to raise up um, biblical leadership within its own, uh, as, as, a, as its own entity that can um, govern and organize and lead and shepherd that organization, okay? Most of the churches that probably a lot of you guys came from are probably congregational. Uh, there's no denomination that has sort of authority over them. You can, be, you can be part of a congregational church and still be part of a network like Calvary Chapel. Uh, a lot of the Baptist convention is really just more like a network, Acts 29, uh, things like that. Uh, but no one really has ultimate authority over you as a church, right? Within congregationalism, there's a couple different kinds of structures. There's something called what a lot of people call the Moses model. And that is there's one person at the top 
They have all the authority and that the church supports that one person. Okay, um, they get that from Moses, right? So, so you might have a lot of deacons that do the work. You might have some committees. You might have some staff, but ultimately the lead pastor is sort of the person that has authority. Sometimes people have a Moses model. They say they have elders, but those elders don't really have any power or authority. They're just sort of people to help do the shepherding. So that's a Moses model. Um, and then there's another model under congregationalism called plurality. There's a plurality model, and that is to say that there's never one person that has ultimate authority over a local congregation and all of its assets and all of its oversight. It's a plurality of people. It's a group of people. Okay, Sam, what does all that matter? Well, what is Philippi? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe you've been coming here for six months. Maybe you don't know. What is Philippi? What are we? Okay, uh, what are we? Well, we are a congregationalist church, which means that we are um, ultimately an autonomous church. Now, we were sent out here by another church, but we are separate nonprofit organizations. So we have overlap, we have um, connectivity, but we are separate organizations. Um, and we are not only congregational, but we are a plurality model, which means I am, listen to me, this is important, tune in, I am not the lead pastor. Yes, you are, Sam. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. You started the church. No, I didn't. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Like you, could, you can say you're not the lead pastor, but you really are. No. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to call it that. Because when I look at the Bible, I don't see lead pastors. I don't see it. Maybe it's nitpicking. I'm not mad at anyone if they say they're a lead pastor. I see a group of men that are entrusted to lead the local church. That's what I see. That's what I see. Let me read you a quote. Let me tell you why we're a plurality church. Uh, now, we, don't, we aren't a plurality church because Wayne Grudem said this, but Wayne Grudem says it really well. He's one of the lead New Testament scholars right now. He says, two significant conclusions, conclusions may be drawn from a survey of the New Testament evidence. First, listen, no passage suggests that any church, no matter how small, had only one elder. The consistent New Testament pattern is plurality of elders. Acts 14.23 says in every church and in every town, they had plurality of elders. Second, we do not see a diversity of forms of government in the New Testament church, but a unified and consistent pattern in which every church had elders governing it and keeping watch over it. Although some have argued that different forms of church government are evident in the New Testament, a survey of the relevant texts show the opposite to be true, there is quite a consistent pattern of plural elders as the main governing group in New Testament church. So this idea that there's a pastor who has sort of all of this authority and all of this power and all of this um, decision making and he can kind of do whatever he wants, it's just not biblical. It's just not biblical. We taught through the whole book of Acts. I didn't see it one time. Not one time. And what do we know about power? Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Show me a church that has one person with all the cards, I'll show you an unhealthy church. If it isn't yet, it will be. Why? Because authority is corrupted. Because the enemy is within the church. Because power should never be uh, anything but displaced among community. So we are, as a church, we are a congregationally led church that is led by a plurality of elders. And maybe you're saying, where are they? <laughs> all I ever see is you. That's what this morning's all about, okay? That's the point. Uh, here's the thing. When we came out here, 
to plant this church. And we came out as a team, by the way, about 25, 30, 40 of us came out here to start this church. And, and we knew uh, that if we appointed elders too quickly, that was going to be a mistake. We knew if we pointed elders too quick because we needed to see who was really in, who was really out, what, what, what people were really invested in this church. So we decided we're going to wait a couple years. And so I had auxiliary elders. I had elders um, that are from Heritage Christian Fellowship that are pastors that have been sitting in and, and helping me make decisions, creating accountability. Um, although I'm the only one on the boots on the ground doing shepherding week after week, there is a group of us elders that are ultimately overseeing this church and deciding the vision, deciding how our things are. Are, are structured and work. One of them, Aaron Beamish, came out this morning to be here. Aaron, raise your hand. Uh, you may have seen him on a mouthwash commercial. No, I'm just kidding. Not really. Um, uh, Aaron Beamish, who's a pastor at Heritage Christian Fellowship. Jeremy Neff, who's a pastor. Jeremy preached here a few weeks ago. He comes out and preaches from time to time. These men have been um, helping me. Uh, the three of us have been forming sort of a board with the intention that we would begin to raise up and appoint local elders um, within this body. And that's really what this morning is all about because we're now beginning to start to do that process, which is really exciting for me because I have no interest in leading a church alone. <laughs> no interest. And I have no interest in having uh, all authority over where this church goes and what happens and what it looks like. That's just not what I signed up for, nor is it biblical. So we talked about how the church is to be led. Now let's ask the second question Peter's going to answer, and that is, what is a church leader? What is an elder? What are they to do? Maybe you're picturing four or five guys with gray hair sitting in a room looking over spreadsheets and deciding whether or not the church is in the right direction. Maybe you're picturing some grumpy person who's you know, sitting out in front of the, uh, the movie theater with a clipboard seeing who in the congregation is coming to watch rated R movies. That actually happens in Southern Oregon, by the way. There's a church that does that. Um, not kidding you. Okay, what are you picturing when you think about elders? Like, what are you picturing? Uh, well, let, let's let Peter describe for us what biblical eldership looks like. If you guys are going to go, okay, we have, we're an elder-led church. We're led by a plurality. Well, what does that even mean? What does that look like? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Peter's going to answer that question. Look at verse 2. Let's start at one. Let's get a running start. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Note the word, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Here is the function of the role of a biblical elder. One word, shepherd. Not board member, not manager, although overseer and manager are similar. Shepherd. Shepherd. Not CEO, not CFO, not, not any of those business paradigms that have been imported into the church. They don't belong in the church. There's no business terminology, at least very little. It's shepherd. That's the role of the elders, of the plurality of the elders, is to shepherd the flock. John chapter 21, verse 15, you're familiar with the scene. Uh, Peter totally biffed it, right? When the cross came, he totally messed up. He denied Jesus three times. Was feeling pretty confident, and he totally messed it up. And Jesus is resurrected, and he's kind of been waiting for the moment that they're going to have that conversation, you know, that conversation. Like, am I out? Am I good? Are we fine? Are we cool? I denied you three times. Am I still in? Okay, and so Jesus knows that conversation's coming. He picks a strategic moment for that conversation, the resurrected Jesus. He's back from the dead. He pulls Peter aside, 
I think he probably actually did it in front of the other disciples. I'm not sure. Uh, but he pulls him over and he says, Pete, we got to talk. Here's what he says. When he finished breakfast, he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. If you love me, okay, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to them a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, what? Tend my sheep. Are you noticing a theme here? Tend my sheep. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, tend your sheep. Pope Peter, does he? He doesn't say that, does he? Tend my sheep. They're my sheep, Peter. My sheep. You tend them. If you love me, take care of my lambs. Feed my sheep. Verse 17. A third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him, a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You're omniscient. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You think that's an important thing Jesus is trying to get through the head of Peter? How many times you got to say something before it's obvious that it's important? Why does Jesus pick this moment to have this lesson with Peter? I think it's because Peter had a lot of misconceptions about what leadership was going to look like. See, Peter had this idea, along with a lot of the other disciples, that leadership was hierarchical. Leadership was about prestige, position, and power. And Jesus goes, no, no, buddy. Now that you're humble, now that you're broken, I can actually get through to you with reality. And here's the reality, Peter. It's my church, and you're going to take care of it for me. How? Like a shepherd. That's what you're going to do. You're not a pope. You're not an archbishop. You're just, a, you're just an, a, a, an under-shepherd. You're an under-shepherd. Now, that needs to be asked a little bit more. Then what does that mean? What does it mean to shepherd? What did Jesus have in mind when he says shepherd? And, and you notice this is why Peter's picking up this language here in his epistle. He's using the language that Jesus used with him. He's saying shepherd. Why? Because that's what Jesus told Peter to do. Well, what's a shepherd? What does it mean to shepherd? What does it mean to shepherd? Let me give you 10 quick things. 10 quick things that, that I think Jesus has in mind, Peter has in mind when he calls the elders to shepherd. Number one. Humiliation. Humiliation. Being a shepherd was not a socially glorifying task. Did you know that? <laughs> there was nothing prestigious about it. See, this is the problem with Western evangelicalism. We've made being a pastor in some circles, like this, this rock star thing, was never meant to be so. It was never meant to be. It certainly wasn't in the town I grew up in. Pastors were usually the quirkiest, weirdest people in town, Right? Like, what is this, this, this cult, this Hollywood culture that's crept into evangelicalism where we make much of these people and we put them on this pedestal? Um, when Jesus called the leaders to be elders, to call, or when he called them to be pastors, he was saying, you need to be a nobody. You need to be, even, you need to be a nothing. You need to be a servant. Shepherds were despised culturally in many ways. They were often thought of as being sort of um, loose or immoral, unbathed. They lived outside all of the time. They were kind of, they didn't, weren't rooted usually to family systems. They were kind of uh, like truck drivers. They were just sort of out on the road all the time, just gone. Just people, they, they weren't a super high class position. And this is what Peter is calling these guys to be. He says, hey, elders, you're not a board of important people. You're a group of servants like Jesus who got on his hands and knees and washed the feet of the disciples. You're a shepherd. It should be humiliation. 
So what does a shepherd imply? Number one, humiliation. Number two, habitation. Habitation. Notice what Jesus said, or notice what Peter says in our text, verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is what? Beneath you? No. In front of you? No. Below you? No. What does it say? Among you. What does that mean? It means that a shepherd is in the midst of the sheep. A shepherd is with the sheep. That's what a shepherd would do. He had to, he had to be around. You can't really shepherd sheep if you're not there. You have to be present. You have to be in the midst of. You have to be among. That's why it's so significant, guys, in Revelation that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands, which are the churches. He's present. He's there. This idea of the mega church pastor who checks in the back door and checks out the back and doesn't know anybody in his church is unbiblical. The shepherd is where? He's in the sheep. He's with the sheep. He's with the sheep. I used to think that when you really made it, you, you could sort of remove yourself from the sheep and just preach. Wrong. That's not shepherding. That's not shepherding. Shepherds are with the sheep. Jesus was approachable. He was with his guys. He spent all day, every day with his guys. They saw how he ate. They saw how he did everything. He wasn't separate from them. He didn't keep them. He didn't stiff arm them. He didn't keep them at arm's length. They did life together. He was among them. Number three, what does a shepherd imply? It implies emulation, habitation. Number three, attention and protection. Attention and protection. This word that's used for overseer, it's actually uh, this episkopos. It's a combination of two Greek words, epi, which is in or above, skopos, which is to look uh, carefully. The idea is oversight, oversight. So you're with the sheep, you're among the sheep, but you're looking over the sheep for what? For danger. And you're looking in the midst of the sheep for sheep, for wolves in sheep clothing. That's what a shepherd does. He carries a staff. Why? To beat off the wolves. <laughs> so what's my job? As one of the elders here, my job is to fight the wolves to protect the sheep, to keep eyes open. I, was, I heard one person say one time, pastors always pray with one eye open. It's absolutely true. I might be praying for you, but I'm also looking at that person walking in the door and just thinking, is this a safe person? Is this a safe person? Is this person okay over here? That's just the, the job of the sheep. It's the job of the sheep. Now, I need to say something, by the way. I forgot to say this earlier. This is not just talking to the role of biblical elder. When, when Peter used the word elder, he wasn't just referring to the people. It definitely has that meaning in line, that, that lead the church. He also has in mind anyone who is mature in the Lord. So if you're saying, well, I don't have to do all this. This is Sam's job. No. Tune in. This is for anyone who is mature in the Lord. Who Anyone who has maturity in the Lord is also in some way considered spiritually an elder. You are responsible to do some of these things as well. So humiliation, habitation, Attention, uh, Acts 20, verses uh, 28 to 31. Says to, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, he says, be careful, or pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's that word, episcopos. To care for the church of God, which, listen, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul has this farewell address to the elders at Ephesus, uh, this, this sort of central church uh, to the greater region, and he says, hey, look, listen, look out for the sheep, because as soon as I leave, men are going to come in, they're going to see the void of authority, and they're going to come in, and they're going to try to take that. When I was a kid, my, my was part of a church plant, and it grew rather quickly, grew to 100, 120 people, something like that. And then the, the pastor left without any plan, without any, anything. He just left. And so it was like this, what do we do? So a couple guys sort of assumed that role and they just tried to be good stewards. And it was like there were, guys, it's like there was blood in the water. All of these guys from all these other places started showing up all of a sudden. Hey, can I preach? Why do you, why, why do you want to preach all of a sudden? They wanted the pulpit. They wanted the church. They wanted the church. I'm not necessarily saying they were wolves, but they came in with this sort of desire uh, that wasn't for the people. It wasn't to serve the people. It was for a position. It was for authority. We need to pay attention to these things. Number four, a shepherd implies collection. We need to keep the sheep in the pen. You need to watch for the ones that are wandering. That doesn't mean keeping people at your church. That means keeping people healthy. Okay? Um, at Philippi, we're all about sending. Somebody wants to go, we send you. As long as you don't want to go from the faith. If you want to go from the faith, we're going to fight for you, okay? Uh, but collecting. Number five, medication, okay? We watch out for the broken sheep. We look for those that are hurting. We look for those that are limping. A good shepherd knows which sheep are limping, okay? Number six, nutrition. Nutrition, that means that the shepherd's job is to feed the sheep. Did you notice the emphasis on Jesus' conversation with Peter in that? Feed the sheep, feed the sheep. Well, that doesn't just mean knowledge. It doesn't just mean information. It's the shepherd's job to give nutrition to the sheep. Nutrition means the gospel. You need the gospel every week. You need it. You need it. You need to be reminded of it. That's what nutrition is. Number seven, the sheep need instruction. Instruction, okay? Uh, They need to be guided. They need to be corrected. They need to be um, led, Warmly and gently, they need to be uh, directed in the right direction. Titus chapter one verse uh, verse nine says, "Paul says, or Paul says, to, um, Paul says, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it." So there is a corrective element to this role. Number eight, and very important, a shepherd implies curation. A shepherd is supposed to curate a pasture, a pasture where sheep can what? Grow, where they can grow up, where they can mature, and where they can make more sheep because healthy sheep reproduce, right? That's what they do. So we create an environment. The shepherd's job is to create an environment not where sheep are um, coddled for the rest of their life, but where they grow up. Ephesians 4, verse 11, this is one of the most under-preached passages on church leadership. It says, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? Why did he give them? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, how interesting is that? I thought it was the pastor's job to feed me. No, it's the pastor's job to teach you to feed someone else, actually. That's my job. As, as a shepherd here, as an elder here, it's my job to teach you guys how to feed each other. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who's supposed to be doing the work of the ministry? It's not the paid guy or the paid gal. It's the body. 
The body's supposed to be doing the ministry. My job is to teach the body how to feed itself, to build itself up in love under the, to the full maturation of the person of Christ, Ephesians 4 says. And so that's why on Sundays, it's not just preaching. Sometimes, every other week, we break into circles, and circles so we can minister to one another. Because I want to train and equip you guys to minister to each other. What else do we think of when we think of shepherding? We think of curation. We think of perspiration. This is not easy work. You know when people go into ministry because they think it's easy? It's not. You're rolling your sleeves up and dipping your hands into the garbage and the brokenness of people's lives. You start to love, you start to care. That hurts. Your heart breaks. It shatters. It's calls in the middle of the night. It's calls when it's inconvenient. It's not easy. It's perspiration. It's hard work. No one thought that a shepherd, when Jesus says you need to go shepherd, no one thought, oh, that sounds like an easy gig. No one thought that. This is hard work. And lastly, administration. There was a, a, a level to some degree of shepherds where they would be overseeing the finances of, their, of the owner of their sheep. They would have to, to buy things for those sheep and they would have to be good managers, good stewards of the, the finances that did not belong to them. And so there's an element of that as well. So this is all of the things, and probably more, this is all of the things that Jesus and Peter have in mind when they say, shepherd the sheep. Now, follow me. How many of those things... How many of those things have to do with some kind of a boardroom scenario? Now, I'm not saying that elders don't need to sit down and talk about a budget and, and be good administrators. That's not what I'm saying. But how many of those things have to do with that, and how many of them have to do with literally taking care of people spiritually? The problem is a lot of churches, a lot of times we go, we need elders. Well, let's find some older people that have some wisdom in the business sector. Let's get them so we can have good financial decisions. And all the while, the sheep are over here starving. They're starving because there's no shepherds. So what we're trying to raise up here at Philippi, we're not just trying to raise up people that can oversee and manage things. We're trying to raise up people that can shepherd, that can, that can create environments of health, that can feed, that can steward, that can care for, that can nourish, that can heal. That's what we're looking for. So we've seen who leads the church. We've seen what a church leader is. Now let's look at how the church leaders are to lead. How the church leaders are to lead. We see this in verse 2. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, Peter's going to give some qualifiers. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So he gives a few juxtapositions, a few things that he pits against one another. He says, if you're going to shepherd the flock, do it willingly. Don't do it under compulsion. Compulsion means someone forced you to do it. Someone pushed you into do it. Someone made you do it. The best example I can think of this is my dad. My poor dad. He never wanted to be an elder, but they always wanted to make him an elder. And he just wasn't. He just wasn't an elder. Faithful man. He kept the lights on. He mowed the grass. He did all the things. If my dad wouldn't have been at the church the whole thing would have shut down. He was not an elder. And these guys were like, Steve, come on. Are you going to be an elder? Are you going to be an elder? He was like, one time he just said, yes, fine. And he just would sit there at these three-hour meetings like, this is terrible, right? My dad never should have been an elder. He says, don't do it because someone pushes you into it. Do it willingly. He says, secondly, do it as God allows you to do it. Some people have a desire to do it, but God may not have that for them, Right? And then he says, it, do, do it eagerly, not for shameful gain. In other words, it should be something you want to do, not something that you want because of a position. It's not prestigious. Nothing prestigious about this role. You're a caretaker. 
And then lastly, and most importantly, he says, do it not domineeringly, but exemplary. Don't do it from a posture of being a dominant. Do it from a posture of example. I heard a couple of really good illustrations about this this week that I, I'd like to use. One is, is the difference between a cattle rancher and a shepherd. A cattle rancher, what do they do? Okay, first of all, uh, they have way more livestock. And they don't know them all by name. They just know they got to get this clump over here. And so they do it from behind. And they do it with, if it's a Western, they do it with guns, you know. Um, Maybe they still do that. I don't know. Does anyone know? Uh, they do it with whips and whatever, whatever to, to drive and sort of get on the heels of the cattle. Now, a lot of churches, the way they think about the sheep, the people that Jesus shed his precious blood for, they think of them like cattle. We got to create this big funnel process and we got to drive everybody into doing exactly what we want them to do, like their hamburger. And so we're going to get on the heels and we're going to do, do it like, like sheepdogs, Right? I heard Rick Boya this week say that. I thought that was so good. He's like, the call isn't here to be a sheepdog, to bite the heels of the sheep and to get them where you want. The call is to be a shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? Where does a shepherd lead from? He leads from the front. They follow. How do they follow? They follow by example. Your job isn't to, 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 to bite the heels of the sheep and get them to do what you want to do. Your job is to lead and to lead by example. It's by our example that we lead. That's why Jesus' life, everything that Jesus did, it's recorded in here so well. Not everything he did, but a lot of what he did is recorded in here because the apostles, the disciples were watching him. They were watching. How does he interact with this person? How does he interact with that? What is Jesus doing with the disciples? You know, he very rarely gave them a direct command. You ever notice that? He very rarely said, do this, do this, do this. He usually just allowed them to watch. See, discipleship, shepherding, pastoring, it's caught more than it's taught. Just being in proximity to someone that is, is, is a good leader is going to rub off on you. And that's what Peter's getting at here. And that's why the, the, um, the qualifications of an elder are so important and so explicit in Scripture. Because the way that an elder exists, a way that an elder lives is so important for their ability to lead because we lead by example. So we look for godly uh, people. We look for godly men that, that exhort the, the, uh, the attributes of the Holy Spirit. We have two big lists of these, by the way, in Titus and in Timothy. You can study them on your own, but we see a lot of things like this. Um, an elder is not to be a new convert. An elder is to be above reproach. That means uh, that someone, it would be really hard for someone to have a case against them because they're an upstanding person. Uh, they're able to teach. Or another, translate, another translation would be they're willing to teach. They're patient enough to actually help people get it. That doesn't mean they have to preach sermons. It just means they need to be willing to sit down. They need to be a husband of one wife. Okay? That doesn't mean you have to be married. Okay? That doesn't mean you have to be married to be an elder. But it does mean um, that you can't be a polygamist. Sorry. <laughs> this is kind of a... Uh, never mind, I'm not going to say that, actually. Uh, filter. Okay. Um, there are certain regions in the world where men have multiple wives, and missionaries have their hands full when it gets to these passages. Uh, like pastors that have been pastoring, like, hey, by the way, did you know you can't, you can't have all those wives? And they're like, what? Um, one woman man. Uh, an elder manages their house. Manages their house. That means this. That means that if you uh, were to take that person and say, do we want, the way, the way that they lead their home, is that the way that we want them to lead the church? If they're good stewards at home, they'll be good stewards of church. If they can lead their kids and lead their wife and lead their home, then the church will be led well as well. 
Now, this is one particular passage in the New Testament that says um, that the children of an elder need to be believers. Um, I'll tell you what that can't mean. It can't mean what it sounds like it means. Otherwise, it would undermine everything that we know and everything that we believe about salvation. Nobody can make anyone be a believer, right? What it means is, is that, that the, those in the household of an elder respect their father. They see him as exemplary and, and, uh, and, follow, and follow, willing to follow him. We see things like hospitable, respectable, self-controlled, gentle, kind, gracious, loving, not quarrelsome, well thought of by outsiders. Now, how many of those things have to do, how many of those things have to do with charisma and how many of those things have to do with character? Hardly any of them have to do with charisma. Maybe some of you in here are thinking, boy, I would aspire to be an elder someday. But you know, I just, I don't know if I can preach. I'm not, I'm not always super good with my words or whatever. Hey, None of those things have to do with charisma. They have to do with character. It is presence over production. It's quality over quantity. It's character over charisma. And it's godliness over gifting. They're not selected because they're so gifted. They're selected because they're godly examples. They're patient. They're kind. They they, they exude the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, we see why church leaders are to lead, and we see that in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why we lead is because Jesus will reward those who lead. He is the goal. He is the purpose. He's the, the reason that we do it. Now, I only have a couple minutes here, so let me wrap this up. Now, we're going to flip the coin over, and we're going to ask the other question. Okay, we've seen how the church is to be led. How is the church to follow? How is the church to follow biblical leadership? And Peter's going to give us four things. First thing he's going to say is we are to follow in subjection. In subjection. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, younger in the Lord, be subject to the elders. Be surrendered to the elders. Be surrendered to what? Be surrendered to their leadership. Be surrendered to their desire to bring spiritual formation in your life. I love how the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Okay, can you just let that, like, let that sink in? I have to give an account before the Lord for the way that I lead this church to Christ because it's his church. I'm just, I'm just stewarding it. I'm an, I'm an under-shepherd. I have to give an account, it says. It says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning. (laughs) In other words, don't make it hard for them. These poor shepherds are going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account. If you're rising them all the time and fighting them all the time and biting them all the time, sheep do bite. Um, If you're doing that all the time, you're making it hard for them. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So how are we to follow? We're to follow in subjection. Number two, how are we to follow? We're to follow in humility. Look at verse five. I love this. Uh, Likewise, those who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves, all of you with what? Humility toward one another. Now, who is he talking to now? He's talking to everybody. He's talking to the elders. He's talking to those who the elders are shepherding. He's saying, everybody, clothe yourself in humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
You know, there's a lot of pushback in culture about roles and authority and headship and submission and all those words are words that pastors feel like they have to squirm and try to explain because culture thinks they're so irrelevant and so dusty and so rigid. But here's the reality. Authority, submission, surrender, roles, they're all good when they're clothed in humility. They're all good. I I tell couples this in premarital. I say, look, there is roles in marriage. The husband is the head of the wife. That's a really good thing if your husband's a humble man. And that's a really good thing for him if you're a humble woman, if you will respond to that. What do we see within the Godhead? We see a mutual submission, a mutual surrender, clothed in humility. We see the son submitting to the father, the spirit submitting to the son. We see this beautiful dance of humility and surrender. And that's kind of the idea when it comes to these spiritual things that we're shepherding. Thirdly, how is the church to follow Independency on God alone. This is probably one of the most important verses you need to see. Who is he talking to here? He's talking to everybody now, not just the elders, the whole church. He says, casting all your anxieties on Sam because he cares for you. Right? That's what it says, right? It's my job to bear every one of your burdens and fix you and make sure everything is good. And if I let you down, then leave and be grumpy and feel like you've been let down because it says right here that I'm supposed to carry all of your burdens and that the the plurality of elders is supposed to go like, no, it doesn't say that. Who is supposed to carry all the burden of the church? God is. Peter makes it very clear. Cast all your anxieties on him. Your pastor, your shepherd, your elders, they want to be there to help you grow spiritually. They want to see you mature, but they can't carry the full load, the full burden of your struggles. They want to help. They want to help shoulder it. But ultimately, it needs to all go to the Lord. He's the only one. And it's my job, actually, as a shepherd, to drive you to him more than it is to drive you to me. A good shepherd gets you to Christ because he's the chief shepherd. And that's mostly what I spend my time doing. Hey, have you talked to Jesus about this? You need him. You don't need me. I got nothing. I'm an idiot. I'm 32 years old. I don't even know how to raise my kids. I don't know anything. Go to him. He is the chief shepherd. He has all life. My job is to get you to the chief shepherd because we're going to cast all our anxieties on him. He's a way better leader than me. Verse 8, be sober-minded. The last thing he's going to tell him about how to follow is to do it carefully, watchfully, and expectantly. Be sober-minded. And here's where it ties back into the introduction. Be sober-minded because, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Where does he prowl around? He certainly prowls around out there, but he also prowls around in here. And that is why, because he prowls around in here, that is why we want to build a model of church leadership that resists him. Uh, we want to build a plurality of church leadership that is forged and hedged against the work of the enemy and the pride in, of man when he has too much authority. And we're going to build a plurality of shepherds here that are mutually connected and mutually um, submitted and mutually uh, committed to the defense of this church and the maturation of this church and the growth of this church and the care for the sheep. That is why we need a plurality of elders. Because listen to me, Satan is really good at what he does. He's really serious. So we need serious leaders that are going to step in with serious affection and serious focus and keep the enemy out of this church. And I'm not going to do that alone. So we need godly men to do this in this role. That's why. 
Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Jesus is coming back for his bride. And when he comes back, God willing, will look like him. So, what does all this mean? Okay. It's like so much buildup. Just... Uh, what it means is, is that for two years, we've been looking. Like, Lord, who would you have to start jumping into this role uh, of, of shouldering the load, of leading and caring for this church? Uh, I'd like you to, to hear a few things I wrote out that I think I would like for us as a church to be able to corporately confess. Here's some things I would hope we could all say. If you're a member at Philippi, uh, I would hope that we could all say this. Number one, I would hope we could all say that we see the biblical paradigm for how Christ's church is to be led. We see it. We've seen it here. And we commit to pursue faithfulness in this area for the purity and sanctity of Christ's role. I'm asking you guys that together as a body that we would commit and say, look, having godly, humble leaders in our church is a good thing and we're committed to producing them, supporting them, praying for them. Would you agree with that? It's the biblical paradigm. I would encourage you, by the way, if you're not so sure about this, go study it. Go study it. I'm confident that if you have an open mind, you will see in the New Testament, this is the biblical model. We're committed to it. Secondly, we believe that having a plurality of co-equal, called, qualified, and appointed. By the way, co-equal. Co-equal. That means there's no lead person. Everyone has the same amount of authority. We believe that having a plurality of co-equal, called, qualified, and appointed shepherds leading Philippi Church is both a biblical expectation and a worthy goal. Would you agree with that? A biblical expectation and a worthy goal. And lastly, this is important, as members of this church family at Philippi, we commit to prayerfully covering and supporting those entrusted to leading us spiritually, and we also commit to mutually minister to them as they also actively participate as members of the body of Christ. The shepherds of the church are also sheep. Don't forget that. One of the things I love the most about this church is I also get to just be a sheep. A lot. You guys just let me be a sheep. It's great. I get to come here broken. I get to come here flawed. I get to come here with issues. And you just minister to me. Thank you for that. That's a cultural characteristic, a cultural value that that I want to drive deep here. That the shepherds are still just sheep. We don't have all the answers. I'm not going to pretend like I do. We don't. So, For the last couple years, we've been looking, look, Lord, who would you have? We had three guys um, that we had about a year ago, we sort of said, I think these three guys um, will be the first wave. At least there'll be more to come. These three guys will be the first wave. The Lord has whittled that list sort of down to one guy um, and and, and one guy that has sort of passed through all of these different things. And we, uh, myself and Aaron and Jeremy, have spent extensive amount of time with this guy. We've we've, we've prayed over this. We've spent time in interviews. We did a whole three-day retreat just to, to study all of this and to look at every verse in the New Testament and say, what the heck is church leadership and how do we do it right. We've done all of this work uh, and now the last step in the process of appointing our first, or I should say second local elder because I think I'm the first one. Um, The second local elder here is um, to bring him before you guys and and to give you guys an opportunity to give us any reason why he shouldn't be an elder, why he shouldn't be um, another pastor at Philippi. Uh, and then in a month, if no one's really brought up anything, you can can contact me, you can contact one of the other guys um, at Heritage, you can get 
um, in touch with me directly or you can um, drop a line on the website that goes directly to me. If there's any reason why this guy, if you guys don't have any reason why this guy, um, Professor Ryan Emmel, it's not Professor actually, that was a joke. Uh, Ryan Emmel back there, our dear brother who we love so much, if there's any reason why he shouldn't be an elder, um, then, then let me know. And if not, in a month we're going to have him up here and, and Jeremy and Aaron are going to come and we're going to lay hands on him, we're going to appoint him and then we now have a plurality of pastors at this church, which is exciting. And Ryan's kind of like the first of many. We desire to raise up pastors, raise up leaders, and send them out, uh, and we'll hopefully keep them too, uh, and plant more churches and see God do things, and we're going to do that through the maturation of young uh, leaders up into these different roles. Um, and so we're excited about that. We, we love Ryan. Ryan is a shepherd. <laughs> He's a shepherd. i got to honor him. He's a shepherd. Ryan, from day one, the second he got here, I'm like, that dude smells like sheep. <laughs> he smells like sheep. Ryan? Is there, does anybody here not know Ryan? He's going to come up here. Don't worry. He's going to come up here. Um, so Ryan is a shepherd. He loves the sheep. He's always with the sheep. He's always around the sheep. Um, he cares about the spiritual maturity of people. He cares about the hurting. He meets the qualifications um, of an elder. He feels the call. We reciprocate that call. Ryan and I have so much in common. We are excited to pull yoke together. We're excited to make decisions together. What this really means is that Ryan and I now and the other two guys that will stay on for a period of time, we really all make decisions together. This isn't what does Sam want to do, what does Sam think? It's, it's what, is, what, is, what are we prayerfully considering and what have we decided as a group? We see him as being um, above and beyond a qualified man and one of the things that makes Ryan most qualified is his humility <laughs> because Ryan knows that he is a sheep <laughs> but he has care for the sheep. He loves the sheep. He's a leader. And I'm so excited, Ryan, to, to move forward into this. And so I give all of that. I give all of that background because I want you to see that the reason that we're doing this, the reason we're taking this so seriously is because it's a biblical expectation. And because when I look at Ryan, I think, you know, if everybody in the church could exhibit the qualities of Ryan, I think we'd be a healthy church. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. There's a lot of Jesus in him. So your part in this process is to take the next month Pray. If there's something that you feel like, you know, I just don't, I just don't know that Ryan should be known, then come talk to me about it and we'll, we'll discuss it. Uh, but if there isn't, you're kind of voting with your silence, uh, then we're going to appoint him uh, in a month. And I'm super excited to do that. Super excited to do that. Um, I also would encourage you, if you truly feel this way, to affirm that calling in him. Okay? Um, this isn't like, a, oh, I have to go tell Ryan why I think he's great. No, I know so many of you really, truly, really, truly believe that Ryan is qualified for this, called for this, and I would like you to affirm that in him at some point because it's really great to hear that. It's really great to hear that. It's encouraging for him. Um, so that's kind of that. Ryan, why don't you come up, and we're going to talk. We're just going to have a conversation really quick because I want you guys to meet him. I know not everybody uh, knows Ryan, um, but yeah, give it up for him. Hey. <laughs> that wasn't awkward for you at all, right? <laughs> So it's, so it's great to be talked about. Can you just come right, like right here, like closer, just a little bit more? <laughs> All right, man. Well, his first job is to embarrass me. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, Ryan, maybe just start with uh, letting everybody know why you want to be an elder and, and why you kind of maybe the story a little bit about how you felt called uh, into this role and how that intersects with Philippi. Yeah, I'll start by saying. Um, Let's get over. Leadership has been uh, definitely not a, a, a natural thing for me. Um, had two older brothers growing up and followed them and always found somebody to follow growing up. Uh, 
when Christ got a hold of me, began to follow him, and then he started telling me to lead. And uh, that, that definitely was a scary thing for me. Um, so kind of throughout the years, he's been telling me to lead different things. And through that time, it's been a little bit more uh, responsibility, a little bit more of a, uh, a push out to, to shepherd and starting to understand what that even means. And as that process has progressed, there's been a joy in me to, to be able to, to teach or be able to just lead people to Christ in conversation or counseling um, and the desire to, to want to care for the sheep has just grown over the years um, to where at the point to where I, I can't ignore it anymore. I can't deny it. I can't fight it anymore. It's just an overpowering uh, desire. Um, and, you know, it, the timing, as far as the timing goes, maybe you'll get into this, but the timing hasn't always been right. Uh, there's been many years. I think it was maybe maybe at least 10, if not more, 15 years ago, I started feeling, Lord, maybe you're calling me to pastoral ministry. I really wanted to like be a full-time pastor or a full-time missionary and, and just hit disappointment after disappointment that, that just those doors weren't opening for me. And just wondered, you know, Lord, what are you doing with me? And uh, so, yeah, kind of a unique timing right now with this particular church and, and uh, you, you people in particular that the Lord has really uh, just softened my heart to just want to be close uh, with, with each of you and to uh, shepherd here in particular. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of cool to see that process up close. Cause I just remember talking to you, like, I think the first time I went to lunch, it was like, you know, you were telling me like, yeah, I think I've always thought about ministry, thought about this, thought about this, thought about that. And, and I knew from the first week, I'm like, you know, that's a guy that could be an elder here. And I, I just wondered, was the Lord going to permit it? And was the Lord going to allow it? And it's just cool to see, you know, see it grow. What are some of the things, some of the areas that you feel like excited to kind of shepherd and, and some of the areas excited to minister in, in particular, things that stoke your heart in terms of uh, the growth and life maturity of this church as we continue on? Um, so the word of God is living and active. Um, I want to see the word of God living, living and active in, in the sheep. Um, so when Sam preaches, I'm, I'm so stoked. I'm so excited to see the word of God go out and people get fed. Um, so I want to like fan the flame to that. I want to, I want to get the momentum going to where the word of God is continuing to minister to the sheep past Sunday morning into the homes of families, into the homes of singles, into the homes of the sheep on a kind of on a weekly basis. And what is that going to look like? We're going to talk and, and pray about what that looks like. I want to see the word uh, powerful in your workplaces and in your homes and in, you know, in your, in your extended families. Um, I'm excited to see, you know, elder, as far as prayer and the ministry of the word, those are kind of the two primary uh, ministries uh, of, of a pastor. And so the ministry of the word for me is going to look less like preaching every Sunday. It's going to look more like how, what does it look like to have the word of God uh, active kind of more on a, uh, a daily basis. Another area would be missions. Um, so I, I mentioned, you know, early on and feeling that the Lord is calling me to some sort of a ministry. Missions has always been a, a really strong element uh, for me, 
uh, not really sure why. It's just it's a really uh, it's just a strong interest of of understanding and being involved in what God is doing globally. Uh, you know, calling people to Himself and building churches in places where it seems impossible or where persecution is happening. Um, so I would like to see. Uh, you know, missions not only be something that we're connected with, but sending out missionaries from this from this church. Yeah. Um, and these are areas that Sam and I have talked about that, uh, you know, God has put limitations on every shepherd, every every pastor. Sam is called to do specific things, and he's and God has sovereignly limited him uh, for certain things. And so when I mentioned some of these things, he's like, Yeah, that's that's exciting. I would love to, to partner. So, so just to add that too, Sam and I have grown as, as friends, as, as buddies. Like we, we love to hang out. Uh, we, you know, just little things like running together and, uh, you know, things like that. And just, yeah, we, we enjoy talking about what God, uh, could do with this, this body. So, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the fun things about the body of Christ. And um, there's so many different roles, by the way, in the body of Christ other than just elder. This is just one piece. But just even within the elders uh, group to see a, a plurality and a distinction of roles and differences of giftings and differences of strengths, I think is really beautiful. And so I'm excited to see where, you know, what areas you are going to bring out and, and areas you're going to lead us in as a church, as another one of the pastors. Um, and that, by the way, that will be the primary language. I, I prefer pastor to elder. I just think elder sounds kind of weird. Um, but Pastor Ryan, I mean, you're, you're going you're gonna to help lead our church in a way, um, I think, in tandem uh, with, with other leaders in, in a way that's going to be really unique and, and particular. I'm excited for that. Any, any final words? Um, yeah. The, so the, the passage that says, not domineering, but an example to the flock, um, I think the Lord has really been pressing on me to just state and make sure that you know where I'm coming from is that I'm eager to serve. Uh, the Lord has put me through enough to realize that uh, we are, uh, we're weak and how we have many needs um, and, and we, we are helpless uh, without, without God and without the Spirit. So I'm eager to serve you and to equip you uh, for ministry, however God has, uh, you know, call, however God has called you to serve and to minister within your circle. So um, I don't have any visions of being, you know, an authority figure to you, even though biblically, you know, that's there. But what I'm eager to do is find out what God's already doing in your life um, and, and, and enable you and help you to delight in him. Yeah. I was thinking we'll just make you the disciplinary elder. What do you think? It's a joke. I don't know what to say. This I don't really know what you're supposed to say. This, this is going to be fun. I just felt like we should end on a light note. I don't know. Maybe we could just do some comedy real quick. You want to just do a little bit? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, man. It's just not, it's not going to work. <laughs> this is not our calling. We love you, man. Maybe yours, but not mine. So in a month, we'll, we'll lay hands on this guy, but for now, right now, let's just, let's just pray. And uh, I know that was, that was kind of an extensive look at biblical eldership, that that teaching will be something that probably will be referenced in the future because we're going to continue to appoint elders. And, and as we do that, you guys will have a basis for kind of why we do that. Um, one of our goals is that you would be biblically literate. So I love that you guys maybe have a, a, a framework and a paradigm now for how to think about uh, biblical leadership. So uh, let's extend a hand towards
towards, uh, towards Ryan. Let's just pray for him really quick. Father, thank you so much for this man, the way you've made him, the way you built him, put him together. I am in so many ways, Lord, he's a big brother to me, and I just respect him and honor him, and I thank you for the particular love that he has for the church. Um, the way that he is just here, present, among the sheep, constantly, humble, uh, offering up his own sin, the Lord, he is an, is an example, offering up his own weakness as an example um, f- of what it looks like to, to be human and, and to follow the true shepherd. I thank you for the way that your spirit lives within him. I thank you for the, the particular things that you've called him to do and to emphasize. Lord, thank you for this man. I thank you, Lord, that, um, that we can yoke together. Father, we pray that we would support him, um, Lord, and uh, that he would be covered in prayer, uh, Father, deeply. And Lord, just work throughout this next few weeks, Lord. We look forward uh, to the confirmation, Lord, of this calling in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.